Buy more, save more with a patio door at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Buy three windows, save $500. Buy six, save $1,000. Buy a dozen, save $2,000 by adding a patio door. But only through April 30th. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for listening to the program yesterday, our opening day broadcast. It's one of my favorite broadcasts of the year, and um, always, if if you missed some of it, we, we did, in my opinion, it, some really, really fun interviews. I had the chance, just because of the timing of the game, I had a chance to talk to uh, David Stearns, the president of baseball operations, uh, Craig Council, uh, Colton Wong, uh, Lorenzo Kane, just just great guys. Tim Dillard, the former pitcher who's now you know part of the TV crew. He's I I, I had never met him before, and I'm really I, he sounds like a really really fun guy. And then of course the highlight of the program is always the comedy duo of Mark Atanasio and, and Bob Euchre. You just get the two of them together, and it's just. I think I started off with them by just asking a question that actually somebody had sent in on the text line. And next thing you know, it's like, okay, you don't have to do any of the interview. It's just let the, those guys go. And next year, I think we'll reach out to our mutual friend, Bud Selig, see if we can get him on. Because it seems like every year when we do this, they're always kind of ragging on Bud. So I think he think he should have a chance to give as good as he gets. So we'll, we'll consider that for next year. But uh, great Great experience, 41-plus thousand people out at American Family Field yesterday, and it was a really— it was really a good game as well. You know, that's the cool thing. If everybody's going to come out for opening day, you, you like to send the crowd home happy. And I will tell you, it was St. Louis is a very, very good team. There's no question about it. And the Brewers were, it was a very, very well-played baseball game. They had key hits, you know, scoring runs with two outs. Uh, Brandon Woodruff pitched a, a great five innings. The relief guys came in, pitched really good innings as well. Some great defensive plays. It was just, it was a well-played baseball game. Now the Brewers have won um, three in a row, and they're over 500 for the first time this year. Very, very cool. They play St. Louis tonight. You can hear the game here on WTMJ. Actually, I'm going back. My wife, Fran, and I. Fran and I are going to go out to catch the game this evening. Hey, um, just just a, a quick world word from the world of politics. I understand that there are some people out there who think that there is no way that U.S. Senator Ron Johnson will be reelected in November. I, I understand that that's sort of the approach in the mainstream media. And as we'll talk about more, you know, over the course of the next few weeks, there have been some just really misleading and vicious false ads run run against Ron Johnson, or at least ads that, if not outright false, are misleading in the extreme. And, and of course, Part of the problem is because of the overall bias in the mainstream media, you, you've had all these charges that have gotten thrown up, and then the, the media is eager to write those stories. And I will be the first to admit, I think that Senator Johnson has, I don't know, he's gone down a couple rabbit holes, and he's invited some criticism that was probably perhaps unnecessary. But it, th- this idea that he's got no chance of winning reelection, I'm, I'm here to tell you, that's just, that is not the case at all for a variety of reasons, partly because the people that are running for the Democratic nomination are so far to the left. 
I mean, really, I mean, think of Joe Biden and then take a left turn and start heading for California. That's that's where the Democrat challengers are. And I think once that starts getting exposed and being made aware to the people of Wisconsin, especially in this election season, it's going to be a different approach and, and they're going to take a different look at it. But for people who thought that, well, Ron Johnson didn't have any sort of support, the, the new finance numbers are out and, and finance, the, the amount of money you raise can it's always kind of a misleading indicator because you can have people that you know raise a lot of money but are still lousy candidates. But nevertheless, it's one of the horse race indicators. Uh, Senator Johnson, who remember just announced that he was going to run for re-election a couple months ago, just um, indicated he had raised seven point one million dollars in campaign cash during the first three months of the year. They said they got donations from more than forty thousand donors. 35,000 donors gave 56,000 times, raising $2.1 million. So um, lots of lots of small-dollar donors contributing as well. Now, in, to put this in perspective, so Johnson raises $7.1 million in the first quarter of the year. Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, he of the let's abolish ICE and let's defund the police, um, he raised $1.7 million. Alex Lazary, who is the the son of the Milwaukee Bucks owner, which is his big claim to fame, um, who is also you know rich beyond the dreams of avarice, he uh, his campaign raised three point nine million in that same period. But 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 he put three point four five million of his own money into the campaign. So he's actually raised outside of the money that he's put into his campaign, he's actually raised very, very little. Uh, State Treasurer Sarah Gailuski, who watch her. She I'm, she kind of gets written off by the media around here. I think she might be a more formidable person in the primary than some people think. Um, she raised $2.1 million overall. But again, she and her family are, are very, very wealthy. Uh, of that $2.1 million, she put um, $1.5 million in herself. So uh, Barnes raises $1.7 million. Lazary really only raises about $400,000 that didn't come out of his own pocket. Galuski raises about $600,000 that didn't come out of her own pocket. Johnson raises $7.1 million. If you look at the horse race aspect, the, the amount of money you raise, again, isn't indicative of whether you're going to win or not. But again, I bring this up simply because anybody who thinks that Ron Johnson is not going to be a very, very formidable candidate – Uh, especially in a year that, given all that's going on, it does seem it's going to be a big Republican year and a big wave election year. Anybody who thinks Ron Johnson's not going to be an impressive candidate, I think, really needs to to rethink that. We tried to get Senator Johnson on the the, uh, show this week, and we couldn't make our schedules work just because of the preemptions with baseball, but we will definitely be talking to him sometime in the near future. All right, when we come back, Who do you know wants to buy a house? Stick around. More Jeff Wagner right after this. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's get let's get right to this. Uh, the news yesterday was that mortgage rates, the cost of buying a typical home, the mortgage rate hit 5%. That would be for the 30-year fixed rate mortgage, which is 
probably that that's the most common that's the most common mortgage that, that people would get. There's all sorts of variations and all, but one of the things that you look at is the 30-year fixed rate mortgage. That hit 5% yesterday, 5% interest rate. That's the first time it's hit 5% in more than a decade. You've got to go back to 2011. Um, that interest rate last week, it was 4.72%. And, and now it, it's up to five percent. If you purchased, if you purchased a home uh, two years ago, for example, you would have been able to get an interest rate below three percent. You know, and again, assuming good credit and all. I'm assuming good credit and all. You would have been able, if you had, as as our friend Brian Wickert mentions, if you had all the right stuff, you know, you would have been able to get an interest rate for a thirty-year fixed mortgage for for a home, even a second home, perhaps. It would have been under three percent. Now it's five percent. And it's, I think the concern is it's going to go higher and higher and higher. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. The increasing in interest rates, coupled with the fact that uh, there, there continues to be a, a shortage in the housing market, you know, and it kind of goes back to, to COVID and all, but in particularly in desirable areas, the, the cost of housing has gone up dramatically because there's such a shortage of things on the market. I have, I have people, friends of mine, I've got friends, I know people, I have friends who, who talk about how they've, I don't know, purchased a home in the last couple years and how their real estate agents have, have come back to them and said, hey, are you interested in selling it? Because we can get you $50,000 or $100,000. We can get you 10%, 15%, whatever, more than you paid for the, the residents because there, there's just no housing stock that is available. So now you have this, this shortage of, of homes on, on the market, and it's not quite as bad as it was, say, six months ago or eight months ago, but it is still definitely a, a seller's market in that, you know, we've talked about this before. You have all the stories about people who put their houses on the market, and all of a sudden, three or four or five people come in, and they're offering the asking price, and then they offer more and more, so people are selling their homes for thousands or tens of thousands of dollars more than they were asking because they get into these bidding wars. So if you're a, if you're a home buyer, you've already got that problem that's out there. Number one, you know, trying to find a desirable house. But number two, you now add the fact that the interest rate is is up at 5% and, and still increasing. And the question becomes, are people going to be able to afford to buy homes? And from the perspective of first-time home buyers, is it even going to be possible? Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this 5% is kind of a magic number. Now, as we'll probably discuss a little bit later, for many of us who bought our first homes in the 70s or in the 1980s, that was a completely different interest experience. There's no question about it, and, and I'm sure we'll end up talking about that. But th- th- this 5% and increasing, is this going to make home ownership even more difficult? And for any of you who might be in the market, either as a buyer or a seller, any concern about what's going on with interest rates? 855-616-1620, we discuss. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Just to put it in perspective, 
The last three months increase in the, the, the rate to the principal mortgage rate, 30-year fixed mortgage, it's been the fastest increase since 1987. Um, for people, just to give you an idea, to put it in perspective, for somebody buying the median American home at prevailing rates, um, it used to be just, just not that long ago, 20% down payment, your monthly mortgage would be 1223 bucks. Right now, um, $1,700. $1,700 a month. And so it's just, it's gone up 400, 500 bucks, and it still continues to increase. How's this affecting things? Chris in Pewaukee. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hey, John. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What do you think? Yeah. So I think as someone who's in the market right now looking for homes, I think this makes a huge impact. Going from 3% to 5%. I mean, you could be adding hundreds of dollars to your monthly mortgage. And so I think effectively for a lot of people that are younger or first-time home buyers, this essentially phases out a lot of people. Um, you also talked about with, you know, there are some things with supply and demand um, that are at take here and are, are having an effect. Uh, but I also think there's a lot of things that are just unhinged from economic principles mm-hmm. at this point in time. And um, you know, that's something that's just going to be more and more difficult for home buyers uh, to compete. You know, we see things where people are putting thousands of dollars over asking. They're yeah. not having um, appraisals. They're not having inspections. Uh, there's a cash offers. So I wonder if some of this, too, is also investment companies, you know, coming in, looking to flip homes. And there's a lot of things that are happening in the market right now. And like you said, with the interest, that definitely plays a role. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, it, it's, it is interesting about about where, where this all is ends up. I mean, is it a bubble or is it something that is it something that's going to be continuing to go on for years and years? Now, it, it, you do have to have some a sense of perspective. Okay, when we bought our first house, it was 1988 and interest rates were well above 10%. And the only way we were able to do it um, with our, our down payment was that we, we were able to get like a five-year adjustable with a balloon. So, I mean, you got the adjustable at a, at a rate that you could live with. And then thankfully, thankfully, knock on wood, interest rates went down. So we refinanced after like three or four years and, and got that. But, I mean, right now, I mean, I talked to all sorts of people who, you know, the, the example of folks who, who have their real estate agents calling and saying, hey, we can get you 10%, 15% more than you paid. Well, the problem is, okay, well, you still have to live somewhere. You're have to buy some other place, and then you're going to have to deal with it. Ben and Rippin. Ben, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, how you doing, Jeff? I'm well, thank you. What do you think about all this? So uh, my wife and I, I mean, we're pretty good at saving money, and like we bought our we bought our house up here in Ripon for ninety six thousand five hundred dollars. Right? That that's a good price for a good home. Yeah, it's a little bit of a fixer upper. Um, but we turn around and we wound up taking advantage of the market and selling it for one hundred ninety thousand. And we took all of that money that we made from it and circumstances, be that as it may with my wife and I, that we have to go through, we sold our house out of, out of necessity mm-hmm. um, because, you know, she's a stay-at-home grandmother and so forth. So that's why we took advantage of the market the way we did. Not everybody's situation is the same. And we bought an apartment complex instead. Um, but to be able to double up on the, on the money and to be able to make your money in return, that's great. I do feel bad for all the first-time home yep. buyers. I mean, it's tough out there right now. So my suggestion to everybody would wait, save, keep banking your money, keep saving it because as soon as that bubble pops, and unfortunately, some people are going to lose their houses, and that's that may be when people have to step in and and, and buy a new house that way. 
Yeah, and it, it's just—it's it, unfortunate, but it's—it's it's just the way the world right now. Well, it is. No, thanks, thanks to call, and and it, no, I do appreciate. It. You're you're right. This this hits the first time home buyers that the hardest, the people who are trying to make that transition. And I I agree with you. On on one hand, it's like well, well, the the reality is when when you look at the interest rates going up and going up as quickly as they have, and then you look at the the demand that is out there, and like you were talking about the different bidding wars that people are going to get in, and you look at the fact that, again, especially for a lot of the first-time home buyers, there, there's only, in order to qualify for those mortgages and stuff, there you got to come up with the 20% down. So now, let's say, let's say the house that you'd hoped to buy for 250,000, that's now 300,000. So you've got to come up with 20% of that extra 50 grand. So there's more money up front. And then, like in the example we're talking about, your your monthly payment goes up $500 a, a month, which particularly for first-time home buyers. That's even if you can figure out a way to qualify, then you're really, really stretching yourself. So that this is it is an incredibly big deal that that these rates continue to go up and up and up, particularly in this environment. You know, th- does that mean? That, that they aren't going to continue, that you need a house and they're not going to continue to go up more. Well, no, actually, I, I don't think 5% is the ceiling. I'm just saying that right now we're in this inflationary rise. Is it a bubble? I I, I don't know. But I think there's a lot of us who, you know, may, maybe look at things that happened like a couple years ago and are going, wow, that, that's great. Glad I got in at 2.5% or 2.7% or 2.9% because that makes a big difference as opposed to 5%. It's 1230. Let's go to the WTM. MJ Breaking News Center. Here is Jane Matinera. Thank you, Jeff. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is Jeff Wagner, Ben in Whitefish Bay. Ben, good afternoon. Hey, Judd. Good afternoon. Uh, just wanted to weigh in on the uh, conversation here with uh, uh, interest rate increases. Right. Yeah, so one thing I would just echo some sentiments from a previous caller is, some advice if I were someone a first time home buyer you're in your 20s 30s is I think I would wait until next year I um, recently read an article from Bankrate that did a survey um, and I think over two-thirds of first-time home buyers regret buying a home um, at this point I think a lot of times and I remember when I bought my first house um, was you didn't really understand the amount of maintenance and money you yeah. need to set aside each month for your home so yeah. I think what people are doing is they're kind of selling their soul and they're and they're going all in to get these homes but then they don't realize that you need to be setting one to two percent if not more every month for the, the price of your home for maintenance and it's really strapping people and putting them in very bad financial positions well you know or ben just the cost of furnishing are, are, now the first home i bought was in whitefish bay as a matter of fact and and it was not your typical starter home we were a little bit older and when we, we ended up buying it but but even at, at, at that it was it was a stretch, you know, back back then, and you know we we had this big living living room with cathedral ceilings. I'm not embarrassed to admit that that living room sat empty for about four years because we just flat out I, I did I, I didn't want to put like cheap furniture in there that I was going to be getting rid of in a few years, so sure. it, it just sat empty because we just flat out couldn't afford to furnish it like we wanted to furnish it for the first several years. So every time you'd have people over, it's like okay, yes, we understand the living room's empty, but it's your point. It's it's the all those costs that people don't necessarily think about. Right. And, and even now, you know, if you need to remodel or do things right now, I have a friend of mine that's in construction and they should buy, they, they could buy a four foot by eight foot uh, piece of OSB board for eight bucks. 
now the same board a couple yep. years later is going for $50. So you think about everything across the board. If your plumber comes, an electrician, yeah. everything is substantially more more expensive. So I would just say anyone that's listening to this, I would make sure that in your uh, in your budget that you are budgeting at least that 1% to 2% of your home's uh, price to put aside for, for, for the monthly maintenance. Oh, absolutely. So a lot of first-time home buyers don't realize that. And like I said, they're, they're, they're getting a rude awakening owning, owning a first home, especially as homes. They're buying, you know, that were built in the in the fifties and sixties and seventies that are going to be needing a lot of those things. And like in Whitefish Bay, you know, a lot of those homes are, oh. you know, thirties, forties um, that that need like 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 you said oh. that need you know furnishing or just they're oh. going to need a lot of these things. So I would just keep that in mind if you're a first time yeah. homebuyer. No, I mean Ben, our our, our house in Whitefish Bay, I, I loved it. It was about a block and a half off the lake. It was in the National Register of Historic Homes. We absolutely loved it. But to your point, it was. Uh, I am not handy. I, I did. I did not get the the handy gene in the Wagner family. I don't know if there is one, but I didn't get it. And I, I quickly learned that when it comes to things like electricity and plumbing, um, not not only not only do I not fix it correctly, but I typically make it worse. That that's okay. That's just the reality. So I. I but it, you're exactly right. It was when when you're dealing particularly with these older homes, even if in their great shape, you stuff stuff goes on stuff goes goes wrong and it's it's always kind of different challenges i i remember i was telling this story just to somebody the other day where, where i live now um which is a newer condo i i wanted to i wanted to move when we were moving in i wanted to move the cable outlet from one wall in the living room to the other wall in the living room if i had tried to do that at my house in whitefish bay it honest to goodness it would have been three guys who would have told me that you can't necessarily do it. And then it would have been three days' work as they kind of run the cable up through the attic and try to drop it down through the concrete walls and hope they can get through. When I did it at my house now, the guy said, okay, you want it here instead of here? I said, yes. goes down in the basement 10 minutes later. Okay, it's done. Really, is that all it took? But but the, these are the challenges that you face now. We're getting swamped with text. Let me share a couple with you. Jeff, my wife and I looked for a house for almost two years. We put in about 20 offers on homes. Many of them were ten to 15000 thousand dollars over asking and without an inspection i don't think there there is no indication at least where we live that it's going to slow down any time soon jeff let's say you think you can afford the higher interest payments that doesn't necessarily mean that the lender is going to agree and while you wait forever to qualify houses sell to cash buyers for thousands over list price. Jeff, great topic. I live on a daily basis. I lost in real estate during the 2008 crash and have since worked to dig myself out of the hole that created and to save to buy property again. Well, the joke's on me. The 20% down I was saving is more like 5%. Obviously, it's not just interest rates. It's the rapidly increasing values. Unfortunately, I may be priced out soon, but I am still hopeful. I think that there's an element of that um, that's going on here. Jeff, hopefully 5% mortgages slow demand. Increasing interest rates is one of the few tools the Fed has to fight inflation. Well, that that is, there is no question that one of the things that fueled the increase in home prices that we've been seeing over the course of the last year or two is the fact that interest rates have been so so dirt cheap. 
the, the fact that you know you you can you you can buy a house and a thirty year mortgage for I think the the lowest it got was like two point six five percent, but but still that's for the thirty year mortgage. And if you're uh, if you're maybe not a first time home buyer and you've got more cash and you can put you know you you can handle higher monthly payments, it's even lower than that if you decide that you want to go to a fifteen year fixed or something like that. Jeff, I feel sorry for young people trying to afford homes. Um, they've been messed over by the Fed's low interest rate policy, which has, I think, driven up prices just as much as lack of supply has. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. Jeff, we would like to sell our home, but there is no house to move to and nothing to rent for less than the mortgage in our area, right? That's that. That's the other thing. And for, for everybody who says, okay, this is the time to, to sell my house, okay, you know, what or that, that that's that's fine, but what is what is the plan B? You sell your house. Where where are you going to end up going? It's kind of like what's going on for a different reason in, with, with automobiles. You, I don't know about you, but I get calls all the time from the the auto dealers where I bought you know one or more of my cars from, saying, "Hey, you know, would we, you know, would you like to sell your car? You know, we can get you top rates for this car." And it's like, oh, okay, well that that's great, but I still I still need a car. So yeah, if if I sell it or trade it in or whatever, yes, I can get a little bit more, but then I've got to find something to replace it with. And, you know, good luck with that, with what we see with uh, the cost of things going up. So you've got all these different factors that are going on here. Jeff, when we bought our first house in, uh, it was a 10% interest rate in 78 when we bought our first house. Scary. We had a hard time swinging this. Let's say it stays at a high, let's hope it stays at a high of 5%. Well, that that's right, because these things are always cyclical. So for people that are out there in the market and are frustrated by the interest rates going up, my, my only my only comment would be, you know, that this in the 70s and the 80s, it, it was a lot worse than this, and lots of us were able to figure out way to buy, ways to buy our homes. And so it, it's always kind of a pendulum. But right now, right now, these interest rate increases are definitely, I think, going to have an impact on home buyers. And if you can swing the interest rates, it, it might mean that the demand is going to drop a little bit. So maybe you can get more of a deal on the house. But definitely a very, very scary time to be in the real estate market. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Stick around. Jeff Wagner is right around the corner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This is an indicator of how bad it is getting for Joe Biden. And I'm, there's new flash polls out showing that his approval ratings down around like 33 percent. I find it difficult to believe that it's really actually that low. But there's no question. It is very, very bleak. But but here's one of the real indicators. When when you're losing the Washington Post editorial board, now I, I think you know it, it might have been that at some point in time in in the past, you know, editorial boards and their and the positions they took may, might have had some influence. It, not so much now anymore. I mean, who cares what the Milwaukee Journal editorial board, if they even have one anymore, who, who cares what they say? But but there are, as far as like thought leading, if you look at the New York Times and the Washington Post, which are both very, very liberal editorial boards, they're kind of a reflection of where like the liberal intelligentsia think. Uh, interesting piece just the other day in the Washington Post, opinion, Extending the pause on student loan repayments makes no sense. Now, this, of course, remember Joe Biden announced that the 
we have $1.6 trillion in student debt. And the, those, those student loans, the need to repay these loans, loans that you took out in good faith, they have been paused with like interest-free pauses for months and months and months. And I think we're probably going on like two years now. And Biden continues without congressional authority, which is a whole different story, to, to delay these, uh, putting them off more and more, and again, using COVID as an excuse. Well, you know, people can't be expected to pay things back because we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Here's what the Washington Post says about this. President Biden blundered this week, and this is the Washington Post editorial board. President Biden blundered this week with his extension of the pause on student loan payments through August 31st. Um, what was needed, what was a needed emergency measure at the start of the pandemic, is no longer justified. You don't say this very often, and Isaac, you can mark the tape, but the Washington Post editorial board is absolutely right. It's hard, they continue, it's hard to make an argument that college graduates are stud- struggling right now. The unemployment rate for Americans with a bachelor's degree or higher is a mere 2%. There is a near record number of job openings. It's a similar story for Americans who took a few college courses but either didn't graduate or left with an associate's degree. The unemployment rate for Americans with some college is 3%. That's down drastically from an unemployment rate of more than 15% in April of 2020 for people with some college and more than 6% when Mr. Biden was sworn in as president. They were in a far different situation in the spring of 2020 and maybe early 2021 as Americans of many walks of life struggled to find work or had to stay home at health reasons or to care for children or other relatives. Suspending student loan payments then was an extra way to get cash into people's hands quickly. That need, thankfully, is no longer pressing. As Mr. Biden himself said last week, Americans are back at work, and that's good news for millions of families who have little more breathing room and the dignity that comes from earning a paycheck. It, it, it goes on. Um, this extension comes at a substantial price tag, about $20 billion. That's nearly the entire budget of the Pell Grant program, which specifically aids the need, neediest students in paying for college. And the editorial goes on and on and on. But the bottom line is they're, they're exactly right. And these are the arguments that I've been making for a while. You know, we had the, the pandemic, and it just upended Americans at, at all different social stratas. It, uh, it upended their, their finances and their lives and things like that. That might have been the case in 2020. It is not the case in April of 2022. There is no good reason to not make people start paying back their student loans. Now, as I have argued before, you, if, if you want to do something constructive. Maybe we could be looking at figuring out a way to judge to adjust the interest rates to try to get the interest rates to a more closer to a market level than some of the interest rates people are paying. I think that that would be fair and reasonable. But this idea of canceling $1.6 trillion in student loan debt, the idea of saying to somebody who, I don't know, went to medical school and has $200,000 in student loans that we're going to forgive we're going to give you $50,000 off or we're going to forgive the whole thing. That That's just crazy. At some point in time, people have to start to begin to pay back their obligations. If you if you bought a car on, on credit, 
and you financed it and you don't make your car payments, well, sooner or later, they're going to pull your car back. That's just what's going to happen. If you don't pay for your cell phone, Verizon's going to, sh- or AT&T or whoever, they're, they're going to shut off your cell phone service. If you don't pay for your cable service, Spectrum is going to come out and shut that off. It's just the reality that's there. Why we would say to people, including especially some of the most privileged people in the country, because they, they've they've got their college degrees and you know they're working in their particular fields, to say, okay, we're just going to continue to let you not pay back this money you owed. I think it is just morally indefensible on so many different levels. And interestingly enough, it doesn't happen very often. The Washington Post editorial board agrees with me not the president of the United States. Will Joe Biden listen? Well, I'm not going to hold my breath on that, but just another one of these examples where you have legitimate decisions that were made during a crisis, during the pandemic, that now continue to be continued and continued and continued, and the losers are the taxpayers. Back with more in just a minute. More Jeff Wagner right after this. WTMJ, W277-CV, and WKTI HD2 Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ, a good karma brand station. And this is Jeff Wagner, so very glad to have you with us. The This is, of course, Good Friday. It's also the, the start of Passover, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that as we move through the show. But... It is a time for for people of faith to you know reflect on on their their, their faith. And matter of fact, there's something I will discuss a little bit later. It's they, they call it the Good Friday Easter three hour challenge. I'll explain it to you and and why I'm so intrigued by this. But every once in a while, you you look at things that go on in the world, and you you ask yourself the question: Okay, is is this just dumb luck, or is it? Is it the, I don't know, maybe if a greater power or something like that that's out there? And I guess, you know, we're never going to know for sure. But you just think of all the different examples. One of my colleagues today was telling me she's driving down the freeway this morning, as a matter of fact, and this, this pickup truck ahead of her, the ladder, there's a ladder that's attached to it, and it comes loose, and it lands in the middle of the road. And thankfully, the ladder bounces, and it bounces to the right instead of straight back, and it, it ends up missing cars, and it goes by the side of the road. But she was reflecting on the fact that, you know, this could have easily just gone the the other way. I was, I, I was telling the story about the last time I drove through Chicago um, on the, like, the Eden's Expressway. You're going downtown. So we're heading southbound on, on the freeway, and I see this car coming northbound, smack into another car, careen across a couple lanes, slam into the concrete sidewall, go up in the air, and it happened to then come straight down. It could have easily jumped over that wall and lands in the lane of traffic where, where I am, and it either hits us or hits the people behind us or whatever. And, and you sit there and you think, okay, is this just dumb luck and happenstance, or is it something else that's going on. Now, I don't claim to know the answer, but a classic example of that happened this week, and the New York Times is focusing on it as well. You had this this shooting incident in, in the New York subway where you have this, this lunatic who detonates a couple smoke bombs and then fires 33 rounds through the smoke, you know, as he's getting off this subway car. Now, um, more than a dozen people were injured 
okay, there, there's 10 people who are hit and a couple others who are injured as they're, they're trying to like trip over, they trip over themselves as they're trying to get out. But, but here you have a situation where you have a guy who fires 33 rounds into a crowded subway situa- station and nobody is killed. It, it's just, I mean, I, if people are uncomfortable using the word miracle, okay, but it, it's it's a miracle. When, when you look at this, because as I frequently say when we talk about homicides, homicides aren't really the best indicator of of, of a crime problem because many times when, when people are, are shot, it, 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 it's just dumb luck or bad aim or a tribute to medical science that you don't die. I mean, just when you think you, you get shot, that, that bullet— you know, if it if it strikes you in the rib cage, well, okay. You know, a couple inches higher, it, it nicks a ventricle, and 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 you die. It's just if you look at this, and I've been thinking about this ever since it happened, and especially with the fact that again we're with Good Friday and Passover. You look at the, this whole situation where how can in that narrow area, how can you fire thirty three shots, and and nobody die out of the result of it. Now, again, 10 people were injured, 10 people were hit, but it, it's just, it is amazing that this tragedy was not much worse. And so just things to reflect on. Don't have the answer of on it, but it is something to ponder as we move into Easter weekend. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. How old is too old? Now, there are, I guess, reasonable people can disagree. When you look at 79-year-old Joe Biden and you see a a number of the the gaffes and the unscripted remarks and some of the bizarre things that go on, you you wonder, okay, is this intentional? Is this just something that is inadvertent? Or is this something that, that demonstrates that, well, maybe at the age of 79, he, he's slipping cognitively? And, and, you know, reasonable people can, can disagree with that. But he is the president of the United States and will be for, assuming he doesn't leave office prematurely, he'll, he'll be there for a couple more years. Diane Feinstein is 88 years old. Right now, she is the oldest member of the U.S. Senate. Her term runs for another three or four years. I mean, so at, through 2025, I, I believe. Now, she is a, a liberal Democrat. So keep keep this in perspective when I tell you where the story comes from. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, that would be the San Francisco Chronicle, ran a piece the other day citing three Democratic senators who wanted to remain anonymous for obvious reasons, a, a member of the congressional delegation, and several of her staffers, or at least former staffers, who all expressed concerns that she was slipping and and slipping badly. And there's all these different, you know, e- examples of this, the fact that she she's constantly trailed by by aides and that when reporters ask questions, she kind of stands there and looks like a deer in the headlight and it's the aides that that answer the various questions that are out there. There's a number of public things where she's been asked about you know, positions on issues, and she just simply says, well, I'm not prepared to talk about that, et cetera, et cetera. So these are, these are liberal Democrats 
who are, are looking at, at somebody who's, again, been in the Senate pretty much forever and are saying that they are very, very concerned that she's, at the age of 88, that, that she's that she's slipping. And yet nobody wants to come out and confront this issue, you know, directly. It does raise, whether it's it's Joe Biden or whether it's Dianne Feinstein or whether it's, you know, pick a handful of people, you know, on the Republican side, Charles Grassley or whatever, it does raise this question that I admit I'm intrigued by, which is, should we have an upper age limit on people getting involved and running and holding office in politics? In so many avenues of American life, there there are age limits limits on on things. Air traffic controllers, what air traffic controllers are forced to retire at the age of 56. Commercial airline pilots are forced to retire at the age of 65. All right, that that's that's just it. In many law enforcement professions, you know, uh, there are depends on the police department or whatever, but there are there's a, there's a maximum at a certain point in time you you are expected to retire. If if you don't want to look at a physical sort of thing, many 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 law firms, big law firms around this country, have very very firm policies that you know, regardless of who you are, once you hit the age of sixty five or sixty seven, you you have to go on senior status, and you know. The idea is that you have to retire by the age of seventy. That the ages might vary a little bit, but th- there is there is this out clause that that's there. And yet, when it comes to office, we we have no upper limit. Now, you might say to me, "Well, Jeff, yet you do have an upper limit because you've you've got the you, you've got the, the voters." Well, yet yes and no. Let, let's take an example of somebody who's like a Diane Feinstein, who's been in the Senate forever. She's able to, because of her position in the Senate, raise millions and millions and millions of dollars. She comes from California that is a heavily Democratic state. California is not going to elect a Republican. So in, in order for her to be defeated, what you're going to have to happen is she's going to have to get a challenge from another Democrat who's going to have to wade in and say, all right, how am I going to raise – all right, she's, she's going to have $50 million, $100 million. She's going to have all this money at her disposal. So for me to run against her because she's losing it, well, I, I, I've got to figure out how to do it. Well, nobody does that as a practical matter. So the, the, it is the power of incumbency and the power of money which particularly guarantees that folks who – I don't know, may have been brilliant in their day and might still be cognitively aware, but at the same time, they're they're able to hang on and hang on and hang on. Okay, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I believe there should be age limits on serving federal office. I think there should be age limits in um, in in state office as well. Now I don't know what that magic number is. Is it all right? You know, you you should not be able to run for reelection beyond seventy five. So if you're seventy four and you're elected to the U.S. Senate, that gives you six years. So at eighty, it's upper, it, it's it's out. Okay, may, maybe that's the the way to do it. Maybe it should be a little bit younger. I I don't know. Maybe you should argue that it could be a couple years older. But but seriously. I mean, when you look at the number of people who are going to be in their early 80s or their mid-80s or their upper 80s or their 90s, and they're still hanging on to these positions of power and making important decisions, 
Is, isn't it time to perhaps say enough is enough and put an age limit? 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I understand my examples here are Dianne Feinstein and, and Joe Biden, Democrats. But like I said, you, you can come up with examples of Republicans as well. To me, this is a nonpartisan issue. Shouldn't we have age limits on politicians? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Stay tuned. Jeff Wagner returns after this on WTMJ. On Slash Radio. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. And I'm sorry if there's people offended by this. Oh, this is discrimination. Well, yes, yes. But but that doesn't mean you people discriminate all the time. The, the question becomes, is this an unreasonable sort of rule? And and here here is the the truth. That the truth is, I mean, you talk to people who are in in their eighties, and I have some friends who are in their eighties, and they're they're sharp as a tack. But they'll tell you that they're. They're, they're slowing down. They're, they don't have as much energy as they had when they were in their, their 60s or in their 40s or whatever. So at some point in time, do we have a right to say, you know what, we're not saying that you you know have to be put on, on an iceberg and floated out into the middle of the Arctic Sea, but at a certain point in time, it's time to retire from certain aspects of public life, including you know become being a public official. And, and I think you can make a really strong argument that 75 or so is, is that is that limit and that you know beyond that you shouldn't be allowed to run for, for re-election. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Julie in Kenosha. Julie, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Well, I am a clinical psychologist, and there's there's something that we know to be fact. Um, at about age 83, you have an extremely high likelihood of developing dementia. So I totally agree with you. It's not ageist. It's not, it's not any way trying um, to be, you know, prejudiced. But it, it's just a biological fact that at that age, yeah. you're, you're, you're kind of cognitively impaired. Right. And, and, you know, and I think most people would tell you, I mean, I, I don't know, Julie, at, at, at my age, I don't see as well as I saw you know, 20 years ago. It's just, it, it's just part of that natural aging process that, that's out there. And I guess at a certain point in time, I, I would look at somebody like Diane Feinstein and just to use her as an example. OK, she's 88 years old. What more do you need to accomplish? Isn't it at some point in time, isn't it time to just kind of give up that, that power that people just try to, I think, grasp onto and, and say, Okay, make way for that next generation. Let's get those young whippersnappers in. Let's get the 74-year-olds elected or something. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think at age 88, um, no disrespect to her, but it's time to give up the ghost. Yeah, right. right, right. Thanks for calling. And, and then, you know, move on. There's there's all sorts of other stuff that you can do. But again, f- for, for people who think, oh, this is so appalling and you're going down all these routes, I, it, in many, many segments of business— even even the so-called white collar positions of responsibility, this this is this is what many corporations have. You know, there are there are rules. Sixty five, boom, it's time to retire. Sixty seven, all right. Even if you're the the name senior partner in the law firm, you you know we we have a succession plan and you've got to move on. So this is not something that's unusual. It's just something that doesn't happen in politics. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Steve in Madison. Steve, you're on WTMJ. 
Hey, Jeff, how are you? Good. What do you think? Um, well, my, my theory is this. Why do we not have term limits for our senators and our representatives? We have a term limit for the president of the United States, but these people can continue to, you know, run for office. Now, I know they get voted in, mm-hmm. but why is it that they do that? I think if we had term limits where they could serve two terms, get out, you wouldn't see the age that much. They would get out and they'd be do other things and the younger generation would get in. That's the big problem right now is the term limits. That would that would really settle a lot of this problem. Well, but let me, let, let's work with that, Steve. Let's say you have somebody who is elected to the U.S. Senate, Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter, at the age of 42. Okay, that you know gets elected at the age of 42, serves six years, runs mm-hmm. for re-election at the age of 48. So they're they're 54. They're cognitively fine. They've got a lot of energy. They've been there for 12 years and gained experience. What would be the benefit of forcing that person out if the voters want to return them? But what what is the point of doing that when you tell the president of the United States they can't do it? Why is the president of the United States only allowed two terms? Well, I think uh, no, no, no. Well, thanks for calling, Steve. I, I mean, I'll answer that. I think that the reason the president of the United States is is that is because. There has historically been a fear that that we don't want kings, <laughs> and so that that I mean I mean Obama is the classic example of that. I mean I think there are people who would have uh, Bill Clinton too. Um, if Clinton could have run for a third and a fourth term, just like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he he would have. If Obama could have, he he would have. Maybe that everybody would have. I think with, with the president and and the unique power and all the power that we invest in the president of the United States, the, the concern is we don't want somebody going to, to, to again, become that, that king, that, they're, that they be, become a Putin, that they're essentially there forever. That's why you have the limits. With a congressperson or a U.S. senator, I think there's a different sort of concern that, that's there. And I guess I, I'm less of a term limit guy than I am of like an age limit because my I mean I think the voters have rights to have the right to you know make determinations for for people and and that the, the, they should have that those choices at a certain point though especially with these entrenched incumbents it becomes and, and Diane Feinstein's a classic example of that it becomes so hard to unseat them that they are effectively there for life uh, unless we would have limits eight five five six one six one six twenty let's talk to Bob in New Berlin Bob you're on WTMJ good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? I I agree that there should be a uh, a, a limit. I'm not quite sure if it's 75 or 72 or something like that, but I'm thinking of I am old enough to remember when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and due to the situation, there was a short period of time when no one knew if uh, Lyndon Johnson had been assassinated too, and the first thing everybody thought, well, who's the Speaker of the House? And it was John McCormick, and mm-hmm. he, he was in that age group, and everybody was in fear. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, think, again, and, and I don't know what that magic age would, would be, and, and this, this is not a partisan issue. I just—the examples that were, were coming to mind is, is, is the fact that 
okay, and 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 maybe I understand you. You say you know Biden is slowing down and stuff, and people would say, oh, that's just because you don't like Biden. Well, I mean, I, I look at some of the things that are going on, and I wonder, okay, would that have been the Joe Biden of twenty years ago? I fair, I think those are fair questions. But you look at some of the stuff that's going on with Diane Feinstein, and like I say, this isn't Jeff Wagner. This is the San Francisco Chronicle saying you've got a bunch of Democrat senators who are saying they are concerned that she is suffering from dementia. Jeff, I've been saying this for years. Um, they always recognize somebody who served for X number of years, and you think, gee, I wouldn't ride in a car with them if they were driving. You know, why are they making, you know, these decisions? Um, Jeff, if Diane Feinstein was my grandmother, I would still recommend that she move on. Age limits allow somebody to be entrenched, like you said, for many years, and the chances of somebody uh, ousting them is difficult. Um, Right. Now, I understand some people see age limits and term limits in the same way. I I tried to just briefly explain why I'm not as much of a a term limit guy, because I do think there is a value to experience. And I think particularly in places like Washington, D.C., seniority and experience, I mean, learning your way around, I I think that 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 is that is it can be extremely important. I mean, some people left or right are, are kooks when they get in and they're kooks when they get out and they're kooks all the way through. But I think in general, experience plays a role. But at some point in time. You know, is there anything wrong with a mandatory rule? And by the way, if you've listened to me for years, you know I feel the same way about federal judges, including appellate court judges and including Supreme Court justices. The idea that you have Supreme Court justices who are in their upper 80s hanging on, you know, year after year, where it's clear that their cognitive functions have declined, and they might have been brilliant jurists 30 or 40 years ago, but Father Time catches up to us all, that 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 fact and the idea that they're just kind of hanging on there and their clerks are the ones that are writing the decisions, that that's, we need to be better than that, don't we? Back with more in just a minute. Stay tuned. Jeff Wagner returns after this on WTMJ. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Maybe that is kind of the ultimate test that one of our texters was alluding to with the people who are arguing against, okay, any sort of age limits at all, that the idea that, that you look at a Diane Feinstein or you look at a Chuck Grassley or whatever and you say, hmm, if, if we were together and we were going to go out to dinner and they said, I'll drive, would, would, you, would you give them the keys to the car I mean, and then hop in? I mean, maybe that is one of the tests there. And again, I, I understand people hear this and think, OK, you're, you're, you're being ageist because I, 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 I am the same guy, I admit, as long as we're talking about cars. I do think that at a certain age, and I don't know what that magic age is. I'm not saying that you should take away people's ability to drive. But I do think at a certain age, it is reasonable to require extra testing or things like that, because the the truth of the matter is you're you're hearing deteriorates, your reflexes deteriorate, your eyesight deteriorates. That is just a function of age. And while I wouldn't be a supporter of saying, okay, nobody over the age of 75 can have a driver's license, I I do, and I understand some people get upset when I say this, I, I do believe that it's reasonable to require extra testing beyond a certain age just to demonstrate that, yeah, cognitively, you're you're still with it, just like we don't let young people, you know, we don't let 13-year-olds drive. Maybe we should, again, have some extra testing on people as they get older. And by the way, I think if we did that, it would be a relief to a lot of people whose parents or grandparents 
continue to drive when the families know they shouldn't, but they can't get mom and dad to give up the, the it, they can't get them to give up the driver's license because, I mean, I understand it's the freedom and stuff like that, but yet it, it terrorizes the the parents, uh, you know, who people who see their parents or their grandparents on the road knowing there's no way that I would, would ride with Papa Jeff, but yet Papa Jeff is continuing to drive. 131, let's go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Here's Jane Matinere. Thank you, Jeff. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Thank you for spending your good Friday afternoon with me. All right. One of the the really amazing international stories has been the, the war in Ukraine, not the fact that, that Russia is an aggressor, not the fact that the Russian, at least the upper levels of the Kremlin, are, are just absolutely monsters, but but the idea that what has happened, in, and everybody thought that, of course, when Russia invaded Ukraine, this was going to be a walkover, and, you know, the, the including Putin, the, the Russian tanks would be moving in, and in two days that they, they would have occupied the country. Well, it's been going on for more than 50 days. The Russian army has been kicked back from Kiev, and it now appears that uh, we are settling in for a long war of aggression. Um, Russia, Russia right now is losing the war in the fact that, that they've not been able to achieve their military objectives, and they've succeeded in doing something that you would have thought would have been almost impossible. They have united the West, and they've at least united a lot of the free world uh, against them and you would have never thought that that was going to be possible. You would have never thought that you could get you know Germany and France and Great Britain and the United States all on the same page when it comes to applying sanctions, and, and yet they are. One of the really staggering stories is that now you have countries that had had never considered joining NATO, and we're probably not going to have a chance to talk about this today, but maybe on Monday's program. Um, Finland, Sweden which has been historically neutral, they are now actively exploring, you know, joining NATO. So what, what Russia has done is by the, these acts of aggression and the monstrosities and the, the barbarity that they've displayed, you know, now you have these, these countries that before were, were happy to kind of like be neutrals. Now they're recognizing what Russia really is. And they're saying it, Vladimir Putin is driving these neutral countries towards NATO, which was the last thing he, he wanted to do. He wanted to kind of remove NATO's presence from the Balkans, and, and that's that's not happening now. So th- those are all the, these different things that have happened as a result of the war in Ukraine. At the same time, you cannot downplay just the, the horror of, of the horror of of war. That this idea that um, you. Well, I mean, you look at the the attacks on the different cities, and you you look at the evidence of the Russian war crimes and the mass graves and the civilians whose hands are bound behind themselves, and and the attacks on the the civilian population centers, and you, you. you know, obviously the world would be a better place if Vladimir Putin had not invaded, and you never know exactly what the end game is going to be, but the reality is that, that he did. One of the reasons, and it's one of many, but one of the reasons that Ukraine has been able to resist Russia as effectively as they have, and there's lots of reasons, including the fact that the Russian army is apparently not what you know people had led to believe that the Russian army was. Secondly, that Ukraine, the citizens, do not want to be conquered by Russia and they're fighting back. But one of the other reasons is the fact that you have NATO in general and the United States in particular, who has been funneling arms to Ukraine to fight 
the, the Russians. And, and Ukrainians have been using those very, very effectively. For example, um, the U.S. has facilitated the shipment to Ukraine of long-range air defense systems, including Slovakia's shipment of Russian-manufactured Soviet-era rocket launchers, on which Ukraine forces have already been trained. In addition to that, President Biden has approved a $800 million package, including howitzers, a serious upgrade in long-range artillery, coastal defense drones, all these different things. So we, the United States, and NATO also, we're, we're pouring arms into Ukraine in order to help Ukraine defend itself against this, this Russian invasion. Now, we're not sending troops We're not flying NATO planes, but we're clearly arming the Ukrainians, and by all indications, they're using those arms in a very effective fashion. So here's the story. This week, it appears that we have made Russia angry. This week, Russia sent a formal diplomatic note to the United States warning the United States and NATO that if they continue to ship sensitive weapon systems to Ukraine, they were adding fuel to the conflict, and they could bring unpredictable consequences. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, we're not going to have boots on the ground, and we're not going to have the no-fly zones, but clearly we are, we're providing weapons that the Ukrainians are using effectively. And Russia is saying, all right, you, you, better, you better stop doing this or there's going to be unpredictable consequences. you got to essentially just, just turn your back on Ukraine. Let us roll over them. 855-616-1620. What should be our response to Russia? For me, it would be two words. I'll tell you those in just a minute. But what do you think? Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. More Jeff Wagner right after this. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. So, so in essence, here, here's the statement from Russia. We call on the United States and its NATO allies to stop the irresponsible militarization of Ukraine, which implies unpredictable consequences for regional and international security. So let me, let me translate this. We thought we would be able to take over this independent country. We have failed to do that. Um, so what we want you to do is stop supporting this other country in its efforts to avoid a Russian takeover. Allow us to continue with our atrocities. Well, all right, how, how do you respond to that? I would have a two-word response. It would be pound sand. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and text line. Jeff, we should temporarily stop sending military aid when Russia withdraws entirely from and ceases all military attacks on Ukraine. Until then, continue to send them arms. Jeff, I have one word for the Russians, and this is, um, I I think, um, remember when the Germans in the Battle of Bastogne, the Battle of the Bulge, demanded that the surrounded American military surrender. The commander sent back a one-word response to the Germans that word was nuts. Jeff, I have one word for the Russians. Nuts. <laughs> um, Jeff, my response would be to Russia, you pull your troops out of Ukraine, give Ukraine 50 miles of borderline into Russia, and roughly 200 to $300 million to help rebuild from your destruction, if not more, because we don't know how much it costs to fix all that destruction. And then, and only then, 
will we be able to pull out? Jeff, we must be doing something right. I would double down on sending weapons. Um, yes. Jeff, I would have a two-word response, but um, you could not say that two-word response on the radio. Yeah, and you can pretty much guess what that two-word would be. Jeff, I think we should continue to provide arms and assistance to Ukrainian forces and hold Putin accountable for this massacre. I mean, it— Look, there, I, I understand that it, it's it's dicey when you're dealing with an, an out-of-control dictator like Vladimir Putin. But at this point in time, I think, you know, this, this idea that they're going to rail about, oh, Ukraine is fighting back and, and we don't want you supporting them. Well, maybe Putin should have thought of that before he sent the tanks and the troops and the missiles into Ukraine in the first place. And on a daily basis, it's getting worse for, for Russia. You had the you had their, their flagship that was, was sunk, and uh, this causes some potential problems because there's some concern that there might have been a couple of nuclear warheads on that, that ship. But, you know, I, I digress. 855-616-1620. Gianni in Montello, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, yeah, great topic. Um, Unfortunately, we have to talk about this again. But, uh, yeah, of course, we should arm the Ukrainians um, against the, this, um, this, 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 uh, you know, this warmonger and, and the cabinet and the, the generals that are surrounding him. And let me pose this question uh, to your audience uh, and listeners, Jeff. Um, what if the United States and Great Britain, uh, but particularly the United States, hadn't armed and supplied the Russians during World War II through the Murmansk run, because we, we lost a lot of lot of uh, tonnage and shipping yes. going up there to supply the the Soviet army. And oh, let me take that one step further. What if um, what if Churchill um, and Roosevelt um, had not had not listened to Stalin and delayed Operation Overlord, and we hadn't landed in Normandy in yep. 1944? What if we had delayed it six months? Because it was Stalin that pushed for the Allied help and opening up an yep, additional front. That second front. So no. the, the whole logic of, 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 uh, it just doesn't work. I mean, the Russians, Putin is nuts, and all those surrounding him, his generals, are nuts too. Well, what, a, what a crazy. Well, the problem crazy, is, yeah, Gianni, I mean, thank you. Crazy th- reasoning. Yeah, thanks for call. But, I mean, of course, the problem is, I, I agree with you that they're nuts and they're evil. The problem is that they're nuts and they're evil and they've got an, an arsenal of nuclear weapons. But at the same time, that, that doesn't mean that you can just give in to these bullies, especially these bullies who are who are, are losing. Now, now, one of the things that's a little bit different, I want to be fair here, is some of these latest shipments of weapons are not just purely defensive. They, are, they have offensive capabilities to the extent that Ukraine is now starting to push Russia back. And Russia, it looks like, is kind of giving giving up on its efforts to take Kiev because they failed to do that. So they're going to try to concentrate in, in certain other areas. But I look, this is one of these deals where, as far as I'm concerned, you know, you, you, you want to find out who's on the side of the angels in this particular battle. It's not even close, and that is Ukraine. Um, all right, now here's one of our texts. We shouldn't be helping. They wouldn't help us. We have Americans here that are homeless and need help, but we're sending um, millions to them. No, America first. Okay, this idea that we have no global interest at all. 855-616-1620. And I I appreciate that you've got sort of fringe opinions out there, but I'm sorry. I don't think you can—first of all, 
First of all, America first doesn't mean, or at least it should not mean, that we stick our heads in the sand and ignore what goes on on the globe, because what goes on on the globe affects us in in America. And I understand that there was a segment of the population who back prior to World War II didn't want, I've been reading a couple books on this lately, who didn't want us to get involved, who just, they understood, they didn't care what Hitler was all about, they just, they they understood what was going on, and they understood the Holocaust, but they still, well, you know, we, we're separated by oceans, what what do we care about that? Well, okay, we, we care about what's going on in Ukraine, because it affects not just Ukraine, but it affects all of Europe with Russian aggression that's moving out there. And the question becomes, can you allow this sort of aggression to go unchecked? Moreover, as a civilized society, when you have a nuclear superpower that decides that it is going to, again, take over other countries simply because it's half a world away, does that mean we, as the nation's probably preeminent superpower and as a member of NATO that has has, you know, an, a commitment to trying to secure that region, does it mean that we just kind of sit back and say, well, we want to be America first? Well, okay, sometimes America first means recognizing that it is a global world that is out there. So, yeah, I, I think this idea that we just do nothing and um, pull out and let Russia do whatever it's want, it wants, to me, that's the same sort of idea that you saw with appeasement in Europe pre-World War II. How well did that work out? Now, I'm not saying we invade. That That's not my argument. I'm not saying that we put boots on the ground and that we, we start directly engaging the Russians. But as long as the Ukrainians want to fight, and as long as they're fighting as well as they are, I don't have a problem with NATO arming them. And if Vladimir Putin doesn't like it, well, okay, there's an easy way to stop this. Pull your troops back. Stop the siege on these cities, and the issue is going to go away. Stick around. Jeff Wagner is right around the corner. WTMJ, W277-CV, and WKTI HD2 Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ, a good karma brand station. And this is Jeff Wagner. All right, one text that I think really summarizes it Jeff, and this is from Mitch in Sheboygan, who says, Jeff, America first doesn't mean isolationism. It means a strong America can and should be part of a strong collaborative effort to stop the expansion of fascism. Yeah, I mean, that, that's it, that this idea that, okay, what happens overseas doesn't affect us. Well, sorry, we're, we're in a global economy, and and if you don't understand that, you, you know, you, you should really like, go back to Economics 101, and you look at where we import stuff and things like that. No, we're, we're part of of the world. And we have an interest in seeing that the world is peaceful and sane and things of the like. And to me, that's America first. All right. When we come back next hour, the four day work week, the three hour challenge and pop culture corner. Stick around. Matt Mayer, Siding Unlimited, WTMJ News Time 207. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. 2.30-ish. We have Pop Culture Corner, which is sponsored this week and every week for the foreseeable future by our friends at Palermo's Pizza. And one of the other cool things is... One one of the callers, one of our participants in Pop Culture Corner, wins a Palermo's Pizza prize pack 
Try saying that three times quickly, which is uh, gift certificates for a couple Palermo's pizzas and some other stuff as well. Um, actually, the, the winner ends up being, it's in the discretion of my producer, Isaac, today, who will find some intriguing caller, and that person will be the the winner. Pop Culture Corner coming up, like I say, right around 2.30. This is the idea from California. Um, California has just a number of lawmakers have just introduced legislation. Now, it, it hasn't been voted on, hasn't been signed by the kooky governor out there yet, but it's clearly an idea that has some traction. The proposal in the California state legislature would define the work week in California as being 32 hours, not 40 hours, for any company that has more than 500 employees. So if passed, this business would affect this, – this law would affect more than 2,000 businesses. So the idea would be, well, Jeff, well, how would, how would this work? Well, okay, in California, if this law were to pass, the, the work week would be 32 weeks. So if you were required to work more than 32 hours in a given week, your employer would have to pay you time and a half. So that that's the that's the biggest thing there. So you would you would qualify for overtime. So the idea would be this is going to become so expensive for a lot of employers that they're they're not going to they're not going to go through they're not going to go through like the overtime things. This would be the deal, time and a half, so the work week becomes 32 weeks instead of 40. All right, our number 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, what do you think of this? Now, let's let's kind of break this down. On the one hand, from the perspective of of an employee, hey, th- this is cool. I, I I I'm it's a full time gig, and I, I only have to work thirty two hours. And if they need me to work more, I, I I get time and a half. Won't that be great? I guess that's the the one perspective. But are there unintended consequences? So, what happens if you say? 32 weeks, uh, 32 hours a week. Does that then mean that employers then adjust downward? Okay, your your salary was um, $50,000. Well, now you're only going to be working 80% as much time, so now we're going to cut your salary to $40,000. Yeah, and, and yes, if we need you to come in, you're going to get overtime, but you're, you're not going to make as, as much money. Where, from the perspective of the companies, where where are they going to find the the replacement workers? Might they then hire more part-time people that they pay less money to? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think about the idea of the government saying and redefining what the full-time work week is, essentially saying it's four days, it's not five days a week, and if you as the employer want to keep your employees longer than 32 hours, you got to pay them time and a half. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My take on this is this is a this is a solution that is looking for a problem, and I believe by doing something like this, it would cause a lot. You want to talk about the law of unintended consequences, that this this would be a classic example of that. But at the same time, hey, you 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 work less. Doesn't everybody want to work less? 855-616-1620. We discuss. From the sidelines. The number one offense in the NBA has a few secret ingredients. 
855-616-1620. Let's start with Chris and Racine. Chris, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Okay, so California is thinking about making it a law. Full-time would be 32 hours, and if you have to work more than 32 hours a week, you'd get time and a half. Good idea, bad idea? Well, it, it's a bad idea, uh, because what happens if an employer suddenly, uh, if he's got he doesn't have enough uh, employees uh, that it matters to him, and suddenly his business expands, and he goes over that 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 uh, magic number. Now he's got to pay all his other employees. He's going to take a real big hit financially mm-hmm. for that. And I'll tell you what what happened to me years ago. I'm retired now. I'm almost seventy five, but I used to attend bar for a yak. Or I'm sorry, uh, uh, country club here in. Uh, Southeast Wisconsin, right? And they also had a had a contact with the city of Racine to do uh, beverage work and, and catering uh, for for city functions. And what they did was they created a separate corporate entity. And I wound up working for eighty hours a week, and I never got a, a penny of overtime because I got two paychecks for forty hours each. Mm. Mm. You got shafted. <laughs> you got shafted. Uh, well, times were tough, and you yeah. had to make a living, so that's what I did. Yeah, no, they, I understand. You know, I'll, I'll give you another variation of this. Back when, when, when they changed the federal laws a number of years ago, that said that for for benefit purposes, is it is it? It's, I think it's thirty hours now. Is what it is. It, it, if you're if you work more than thirty hours a week, you're entitled to benefits. Well, I'll, I'll, this is. This is this this happened to us at this company. Now, I'm a full-time employee, but we had, for example, we had some producers who were part-time employees, including the guy who was producing my show at the time. And and he it was an interesting situation because he was married, his wife worked full-time. He didn't even need the benefits, but he, he liked doing this. And he was working, I don't know, probably 35 hours a week, but not not 40 because that would have been full time. So, and at least initially wasn't entitled to benefits, but he didn't need benefits. He didn't want benefits. So what happened is when this rule change went into effect, and this was during the Obama years, what this company, and and not the current iteration of the company, I think, I don't know if we were owned by Scripps or Journal Communications at the time or whatever, but what they did and what a lot of companies did is they said, okay, well, we're we, we don't think we can afford to pay benefits. So what we're going to do is we're going to take these people that are working 35 hours a week or 38 hours a week, and we're going to cut them to 28 hours a, a week. So in, in the case of my producer, he lost 10 hours. He, he, they, they, he, they weren't going to give him the benefit. They didn't figure they could afford to pay for the benefits. So all they did is they cut his hours 10. He had 10 fewer hours. So what it forced him to do is go out and try to find a second part-time job. It was just, again, it was one of these unintended intended consequences that are there. And and I think there's just so many of these things that could come from this whole idea of, all right, we're going to cut this back to, you know, 32 hours. Let's talk to Holly uh, in Grafton. Holly, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi. You just just talked about my point. I thought it was 32 hours for benefits. Could be. Okay. Um, Yeah, but if if it's 30 hours, then what if you only work 29 hours one week, and are you not going to get your benefits? Are they going to be cut off? Yeah, and, and I mean, I just think, I mean, there's going to be all sorts of ways that the employers are going to try to get around this, and my guess is a lot of those oh, ways sure. they do it are, are going to impact on on the employees, starting with the idea 
that your your salary is going to be cut twenty percent. I mean, you know, if if I'm being paid for forty hours, even if I'm a salaried employee, and all of a sudden you say thirty two hours, well, I can't imagine the company saying we're going to pay you the same for for working, you know, eighty percent. That's just not going to happen. Do people want to give up twenty percent of their salary to have an extra day? I don't know. Well, right. Like, you know, my husband's a salary employee and he gets paid for 40 hours a week, but it's kind of said you're working 45. Yeah, right. He doesn't get the overtime. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it, I think the benefits is, is health insurance is just so, so expensive that I think employers are going to find a way to just cut that out. Right. No, I'm, I'm with you. Thanks for call, Holly. And a number of people are texting, for example, one, Jeff, I, I, for example, um, you know, in, in many jobs, you, you, you need that, that 40 hour, you need that 40 hour work week. Now, I think some creative employers are, look, I, I, I love the, the idea of having a day off. I've, I've told this story before, before I went to law school, I got out of college in three and a half years, before I went to law school, I came back here and I worked for an insurance company, Time Insurance, which is now, it was Assurance, I'm not sure what it is now. But anyhow, I, I, I worked there between, from January till I started law school in, in September. And they had this deal during the summer where you got Friday afternoon off. And the way, the, the way they did it is they, they, you came in 15 minutes early and then they cut the lunch hour by 15 minutes or however they did it. But it, it equaled out to you got, you know, Friday afternoon off. I loved having Friday afternoon off. I, I absolutely loved it. It was like an extra day for the weekend. You could go out, you could play golf, you could do all those things. It, it was it was great and it was a great employee benefit. But there's other business. It, the insurance company I work for, it made sense. They could do it because, well, you know, during the summer, like a lot of the insurance agents across the country that they dealt with, they, were, they weren't around anyhow. It wasn't a busy time, so they could do this, but it was a voluntary decision that the businesses made. There's a lot of businesses in the healthcare area, for example, I know that they, they, they use these modified work weeks anyways. It's like, okay, you've got four 10-hour days, and then you get three days off. Th- those things are great, and I think it's an attractive benefit for some people to have. But for the government to come in and say, no, this is how we're going to redefine this, and Mr. or Ms. Employee, employer, you know, you're now going to have to eat all these extra costs, to me, again, it is completely and totally unworkable, and it's going to raise all sorts of issues, and we've only scratched the surface with that. Will this go anywhere in California? Who who knows? But this is, of course, California, where every bad idea seems to originate. Back with more in just a minute. And when we come back, it's called the Good Friday Easter three-hour challenge. I want to share it with you. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This, of course, is Good Friday. And for Christians, Good Friday is is arguably the most sacred day of the the year, and particularly between noon and three, because historically that that is when we believe that that Christ died on the cross from noon until three. And so it's this period of time that Christians— reflect on on the crucifixion of Christ. That is, that's during the noon to three period. And of course, then it leads into the resurrection on, on Easter for people who, who believe. There, there's 
Douglas McKinnon, who's an author, wrote a piece a couple years ago that I, I've kept with me because it's 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 interesting and it ties into that that three hour thing and it's 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 called the Good Friday Easter three hour challenge and I want to just share it with you for a moment. Can we give just three hours of our time? in the service of someone in need. On Good Friday, the day and time when Christians over the world reflect upon the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, can we use the inspiration, glory, and salvation from that ultimate sacrifice to make a real difference in the life of a fellow human being in distress? Millions of Christians pause in prayer from noon till three on Good Friday as a way to honor Jesus and thank him for such a divine offering. Three hours. While those three hours are in remembrance of the time Jesus suffered on the cross, they can also be transformed into a light that brightens the lives of countless people suffering on their own in silence. Be it on Good Friday, Easter Sunday, once a week, once a month, or once a year, what if some of us from any faith or no faith spent three hours of our time helping those being forgotten, neglected, or marginalized by society. Medical science is now making it clear that loneliness is not only as debilitating as many diseases, but just as fatal in some cases, the elderly among us being the most at risk and the most negatively impacted. We all know someone alone through no fault or desire of their own. Men and women who often eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner alone, day after day, year after year. Tragically, more and more are choosing to end their lives to stop the pain. If we don't personally know someone going through such loneliness, our place of worship, our place of work, or multiple organizations can point us in the right direction. Once a week, once a month, once a year, spend three hours with someone literally wasting away from the debilitating effect of loneliness and change a life for the better. While there are millions of people in such mental agony, there are millions of us who are not. Pair up and delete a name from that lonely list. Three hours to take somebody shopping. Three hours to take someone to the movies. Three hours to go to dinner. Three hours to go to a park. Three hours to accompany someone for a doctor or hospital visit. Three hours to learn from the amazing life experiences of someone older and wiser than us. The most human misery will never be solved in a macro sense. No matter how good the intentions, that is a reality that will never change. That said, human misery can be solved, or at the very least, greatly minimized in the micro sense. One-on-one charity is often dramatically more effective and much more personally rewarding than that managed by huge organizations through the impersonal act of writing a check or swiping a credit card. There is so much human suffering that can be alleviated without the expenditure of one penny. The often life-crushing despair of loneliness is just one. What's your cause? Whose plight touches you the most deeply? No matter the cause, surely, Three hours of one person's time multiplied by millions can make a positive and a lasting difference. It's the three-hour challenge. Be it around a religious holiday or not, pick a cause, take the challenge, and then pass it along. And, and I remember I, I saw that a couple of years ago, and it, it registered in such a, a meaningful way. It's, it's the three-hour challenge, and it's something that all of us can do. And I'm not saying you have to do it every week. I'm not saying you have to do it every once. But even if it's once a year, that this commitment that you're going to take three hours out of your life and you're going to do that, that random act of kindness, pick that person. Maybe it's the, the neighbor who's kind of the, the, the shut-in. Maybe it's the widow or the widower 
who, you know, struggles at, at various times having lost their, their spouse or, or whatever. It, and, it, and, it, and it can be, it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to involve, you know, the expenditure of money. Maybe it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm going to go over and I'm going to sit and I'm going to watch TV <laughs> with, I'm going to watch TV with, you know, with Bob or, or whatever for a couple hours. Or maybe, you know, I'm going to invite him to take a walk with me when we go, you know, and, and walk the dog. Or maybe, gee, I, I always know that he used to love to, to watch the ball games or something. So I'll go over to his place and I'll bring a six pack of beer and we'll sit there and we'll we'll watch the ball game. It, it's that three hour challenge. And again, it doesn't matter whether you are a person of faith or whether you're, you know, or you have no faith or it, it doesn't matter, you know, what what that is. It's this opportunity to reach out with some of these random acts of kindness and and make a difference. And it's a way of doing it that we all we all have that ability, that three hours. So um, but before we phase into the next segment of the program, I did want to share that with you, and it's kind of one of my personal challenges to myself and, and maybe maybe to you, if you really want to contribute to trying to find ways to make the world better. There's all sorts of great ways to do it, but one of the micro-senses and the micro-ways you can do it is the Good Friday, Easter, three-hour challenge. Take three hours out of your life. Make that commitment to figure out how you can find somebody that just needs some companionship, ease their loneliness for three hours. They will feel better. And you know what? You will feel better as well. It's 2.30. Let's go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Here's Jane Matinair. Thank you, Jeff.